we heal in partnership with the rest of life and with the land where we're at. If we let the good medicine of the land where we're at assist us, that's not greed or entitlement. That's also good for the land. It creates a kind of beneficial indebtedness and relatedness. Hello, friends. You're listening to episode 44 of the Medicine Stories podcast. I'm Amber Hill, and today I am talking again to Dr. Daniel Four. He was on episode 26. Y'all loved it. It was very life changing for me to dive so deeply into ancestral medicine, ancestral remembrance, ways to connect to the ancestors, ways to approach the ancestors. And when I saw that Daniel has an upcoming course on practical animism and checked out the course and the structure and the name of the modules, I really wanted to have him back to talk more about this. We talked about it briefly at the end of the last episode. You might remember that if you heard it. And so I'm going to be a supporter of this online course coming up, which means that there will be live calls. Daniel explains the structure of the online course at the end of this episode, but there are a series of 14 live calls that, you know, everyone can tune into who's part of the course. And then we'll break out into smaller groups after each call. And I'm going to be leading a small group. So I'm excited to be part of it. And it was a huge yes for me, even though it's a time commitment and time is my scarcest resource these days. Uh, because I'm so excited about the material and about learning how to connect more with the spirit of the place that I'm at with the animals and plants and so much more around me. So the course again is called Practical Animism Online Course Reclaiming Kinship Through Earth Honoring Ritual and it begins May 13th but if you're listening to this after that date and you're interested you can sign up until June 17th. So you can learn more at ancestralmedicine.org. And um, this is 2019 for people who might listen far into the future. Um, at During the interview, I say, like, we're not here to sell the course to you. And I'm stoked if I sell the course to you, if you listen to this and it calls to you. I just meant that um, I structured the interview so that the content of what we talk about also serves you and changes your life and sparks interest that makes you want to dive deeper into things and to cultivate more rich and present relationships with the beings around you, the more than human beings around you. Um, So yeah, and I wanted to put a little bug in your ear too, to listen until the very end of the interview where Daniel gives his three steps to get your life together. (laughs) And um, I just really think that, I mean, it's kind of a funny way to put it, but the the three steps are actually like right on and super important things to do. So I also want to tell you before we get into it that I am currently running a giveaway and the winner will receive a $300 gift certificate to the Mythic Medicinals online shop all of our good medicines there, the extra potent elderberry elixir, reishi, triple extraction, lion's mane triple extraction, St. John's wort oils, which are currently on sale, by the way, um, and so much more. We've got such good medicine happening right now. I'm so proud of, of what we've done with the shop, and we're going to be discontinuing some things this year so we can really focus on the things that are most important to us and that people seem to love the most, too. So the way you can enter this giveaway, which ends May 1st on Beltane, is to just head to my website, mythicmedicine.love, and sign up for my newsletter in some way. You can either do that by taking the quiz, or the bottom of every page in the footer is just, you know, a form where you can put your email address in. And um, the newsletter is super relevant to everything we talk about on the podcast, so I don't think you'll be bummed that you became a subscriber and you'll be automatically entered to win this $300 gift certificate. Oh, and said quiz is called Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? And it's a really fun quiz, but the results dive really, really deep into 
the spiritual and physical medicine of whichever plant showed up for you. So you can take that there. And then when you input your email at the end, you'll be a subscriber. Okay, so Daniel for PhD is a licensed psychotherapist and doctor of psychology. He's a teacher and practitioner of practical animism who specializes in ancestral and family healing and in helping folks learn to relate well with the rest of the natural world. Um, his full bio is super interesting. You can check it out at ancestralmedicine.org if you like, but I'm not going to read the whole thing here because I just want to get into this interview. So here we go with Dr. Daniel Four. Hey, Daniel, welcome back to Medicine Stories. Thanks so much. It's good to be here, Amber. I'm glad to have you here. So at the end of our last conversation, um, which was which I titled Ancestral Reverence as Devotion to the Earth, we spoke mostly about the ancestors, but at the end, we delved a little bit into animism, and I'm happy to have you back today to expand on that conversation. And I thought I would begin by asking you to unpack something you said during that conversation, which is that um, living humans aren't the only kind of person. Yeah, for sure. The language of animism for me is, uh, I'm drawing on the work of Graham Harvey, who's a lovely person and scholar and friend in England, and his work rests upon other anthropologists and indigenous folks and different people articulating ways of understanding relationship with the wider field of other than human people. And so one of the challenges is how do we in English talk in the most neutral way about our relatedness to the rest of life? What what captures that best in a cultural moment when even when English congealed as a language, I think around seven, eight, eight hundred, a thousand years ago, a lot of the sensibilities that we would think of as indigenous or animist were already fragmented or disappearing a bit. So English isn't set up for this task that well. But one of the ways that Graham's work and other people articulating modern animism speak to me is using the language of people, like stone people, tree people, ancestor people. And this is inspired partly by an earlier anthropologist, Irving Hollowell's time, I believe, with the Ojibwe people uh, in Great Lakes area in the Turtle Island. And the sense of it is just that humans are one kind of person and these others are referred to as people because they're interpersonal relationships there's accountability there is a sense of kinship of ethical um, accountability to one another and it's not even necessarily spiritual it's just that living humans are just one player one person and to me, that took years of work with shamanism and paganism and things like that and, and involvement in indigenous traditions to a degree and made it really simplified and really about core values in a way that also clicked with my training as a therapist and doctor of psychology. I'm like, oh, it's just about relationships. And these others are people too. Got it. That captures it. So in that way, I tend to describe what I'm doing as animism. It feels more accurate than shamanism or paganism, things like that. I like what you said, that it's not necessarily spiritual. Um, and it's certainly not like New Age wishful thinking, which I think for a lot of Westerners, it at first hits that way. Um, but yeah. it's really just fact and what our ancestors knew. Yeah. Uh, the idea of sacred not sacred is a suspicious kind of distinction the idea of like spirit even talking to the spirits like a bear spirit like what's the difference between bear spirit and bear okay we can talk about spirits as not incarnate kinds of people and i know what's meant by that it means ones that are not readily perceived by all humans through our sensory channels but it doesn't mean their bodies are less real than our bodies any more than the bodies of microbes I can't perceive are less real, or the stars that are obscured by the sun are less real. And so the 
you know, the spirit, not spirit distinction is problematic. Of course, the spiritual, not spiritual distinction. And we tend in modern Western cultures, <clears throat> even in cultures of psychology and therapy, to only legitimize other living humans and not even all of them, if you're being honest about your bigotry and cultural conditioning. And so the proposition of animism is not only that rivers and plants and animals and such are people, but that we're going to project all of our baggage and stuff and psychological issues onto these other people, that they're sources of intimacy and relationship, but also sources of projection and aggression and confusion and reactivity, both. Um, just as an example for our listeners, you've written that these other kinds of people can include plants, animals, fungi, mountains, metals, fire, bodies of water, spirits of wind and weather, deities, human ancestors, star people, and others we don't have words for in English. I found that helpful, kind of grounded me more into how uh, all the possibilities inherent in this and this framework, which we also spoke about last time that you and I both have undergraduate degrees in religious studies. And I remember so clearly so many of my teachers talking about both, quote, ancestor worship and animism as these like throwback, you know, ridiculous ideas uh. that ancient humans had. And aren't we glad that we've progressed beyond those and we're so rational and so much smarter now. Um, how, like, I'm curious about, uh, I guess for you personally, how you came to, because uh, I'm assuming maybe this is not true, but that you received similar ideas in your undergraduate degree. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How you came to turn around and be like, oh, wait a minute. No, we're the ones who have it backwards. I actually played that out for a little bit. I was involved in pagan shamanic things and then converted to Islam for a while, lived in North Africa as a Muslim, which was instructive, and was involved in Sufism and stuff. And then, th you know, I had my spiritual teacher crush, and that fell apart because the teacher was being unethical. And I actually went to some shamanic journey circle again and dropped back in with the spirits that I've been working with prior to all that. And they really had some words for me. It was very humbling and good, but hard about my snobbery and the idea that I had kind of found the truth, which I don't know. It's a generalization, generalization, but um, it's an easier thing to fall into uh, earlier in life, thinking that you found, you know, the way. And but I, I made that mistake. And in any case, the spirits were up in my grill about it and appropriately and bringing me back into a framework of relationship because animism is a orientation to life or one way to describe an orientation to life most of whom most of the people who are practicing that don't call it animism or don't care about that term of course but it's a framework that values relationships and trying to navigate respectfully through a lot of different kinds of relationships and and so we're a lot of folks are down lineage from a tremendous amount of racism and colonialism and judgmental, arrogant, materialistic scientism and um, dismissal of indigenous peoples. And it happens in the field of psychology. It happens in medicine. It happens in modern liberal minded spiritual circles. And then the flip of that happens of idealizing indigenous people or brown people and it's like oh if you're indigenous you must be super spiritual which is just the inverse of the racist view that you're primitive and not educated and so yeah i part of why i slow down to actually talk about and claim and unpackage an animist uh, orientation to life is to say this is not only is it very legitimate it's very sophisticated in, in a certain way, it's more evolved, you could say, uh, or um, more relationally smart than views, than traditions that don't place emphasis on relationships and accountability. And so for me, seeing the rest of life as a source of intimacy, a source of community, of personhood, feels more responsible than objectifying the rest of life. It doesn't mean 
it's true. It doesn't matter if it's true. The results that come from seeing the world that way are better. We get more biological diversity. We get better policy. We get better uh, systems and better health. So I have um, an idea for a framework for how the rest of this interview can continue. Um, we just scheduled it two days ago, and I didn't have as much time as I usually do to prepare. But when I was looking at your website and the outline for your upcoming online course on animism and all the things we're talking about, I saw um, a neat way to help frame my questions. So if you will, I thought that we could go through... And we don't have to do it to the end, and I might skip around, but sort of lesson by lesson, I pulled different words and ideas out of each of them and thought I could just read them to you and you could explore them a little more. And so, thank you. I just pulled out the ones that, you know, I was interested in, I would like to hear you speak about a little more. And um, to make clear to you, this course is beginning in May, and we're not here to try to sell it to the people, um, but it's there, and we'll talk about it at the end, and I'll be a supporter for the course, too, and can be connecting one-on-one with other people who are taking it alongside me, and I'm really looking forward to it, especially after going through all the lessons this morning. Like, It just looks really beautiful, and everything you do is so well done, and since your last uh, interview, you've just become a really important teacher for me, and I'm happy to expand my um, studentship beyond the realm of the ancestors here. So, yeah, thank you, Daniel. Um, There's two parts, and lesson one in part one is called Kinship, Intimacy, and Animist Psychology. I would like to hear more about the the distinction between animism, shamanism, and indigenous ways. Yeah, there's so much dogma and judginess and competitive, nasty backbiting in spiritual circles that I really don't want to add to that with my own judginess. So that's my intro. Having said that, I favor the language of animism to describe a values-based approach because describing what I'm doing as shamanism feels like it, one, exacerbates old tensions from the genocidal occupation of the Americas by European ancestry people. And it, it, whether or not people want it to have that effect, the word shamanism has come to land as a disrespectful generalization for a lot of native First Nations people. And because it's important to be able to describe a way of loving and relating in the world without implying that it means you're in the role of a shaman or even a shamanic practitioner, necessarily. You don't have to be an animism practitioner. It doesn't imply any certain vocation or any certain approach to ritual, or even that you do a lot of ritual. So that feels like a more accurate descriptor in that way as a short version. And it's important for me to not describe what I'm doing as indigenous spirituality or sensibilities, because I'm I'm not personally among the three to 400 million people on earth who are legitimately, politically, legally indigenous people. And I find that it's also important for the 95% of humans who are not and will not ever be indigenous per se in that designation to also love the earth urgently and effectively and passionately. And to have a framework for doing that that doesn't exacerbate old harms between indigenous and non-indigenous people and that doesn't unnecessarily legitimize itself based on an identification with indigenous spirituality. Now, having said that, if we're taking a way more expanded poetic license to say indigenous wisdom, indigenous sensibilities, sure, we all have that in our ancestry, absolutely. And it's important to not collapse the current legal political definition of indigenous into just a poetic lens or else you're at risk of exacerbating old harms and participating in unhelpful erasure of First Nations native voices. So I call it animism because I think it's the best way around the problem. But best is just to get into the work and not worry so much about what to call it. Thank you for those definitions and that distinction. Lesson two, I feel like I could spend this whole conversation talking about um, It's kind of my favorite. Is it? Well, and I, I saw you get attacked on Instagram recently. I know. It's fun. <laughs> you know you're doing something good when people come after you. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've shared quite a bit about my own uh, journey from veganism to meat eating and have definitely been <laughs> been on the receiving end of that as well. But this lesson is called Eating, Killing, and Giving Thanks. Um, okay, and there's so much we can talk about, but let's just start with the first principle you have listed under that lesson or the first idea, which is um, the psychological implications of thinking of plants and animals as people or of the reality of plants and animals as people. Yeah. What I'm inviting people to face as much as people emotionally can, knowing that for many people it's a real sensitive trigger, is how we kill to live. That humans are heterotrophs. We eat the bodies of others. We don't photosynthesize personally. And so, like fungus, we eat others. We might eat plants, we might eat animals or a combination therein, or fungi or other things. But even if you don't eat the bodies of animals directly, animals still die in the food prep and, and all that. And for me, it's very important to not say that plant people are less legitimate, less conscious, less sentient, less aware of being eaten than animals. I also don't have the view that all the beings that are being eaten are non that it's not always non-consensual that there's a, an intimacy in eating the bodies of others there's a lot to be said here about how uh, racism intersects rigid veganism or vegetarianism when people take that rigidly i'm not saying most people who, who opt to not eat animals are rigid about it but i participate in west african tradition uh yoruba tradition and we kill and eat animals and we even sometimes pray with them. And it's very intimate. It's intimate to cut the head off of a sheep uh, when praying for the animal. It's something that uh, I, you know, I'm familiar with. Let me, let me leave it at that. And it is good medicine when an animal who has died, whose body you're going to eat, has been prayed with in a reverential way. If we had a policy that we only eat animals or plant people that we have prayed with and intentionally thanked before killing, I think a lot of things would shift. So I'm not, uh, what I'm saying is that we take life and that's very intimate and there's a gravitas with it. And it's best to find ways to face that enough to be able to say, wow, thank you. Is really um, is hubris, or at least shows a really lack of understanding to think that we can rise above um, <laughs> this this dance of now I eat you, now you eat me, which is what Susan Weed writes in, in one of her books. Sorry to invoke Susan Weed for all the herbalists who are listening who um, don't like her very much for good reasons, but. I always, I always remember that, you know, the first time I read it, I was still vegan <clears throat> and she lays out this whole framework. Now I eat you. Now you eat me. We cannot remove ourselves from being heterotrophs, this, this word that I yeah. learned from you. And I think it's really beautiful that you're bringing that into this framework. I, I would love for the really sensitive, passionate vegan or vegetarian folks who, who take that also as a political stance to be willing to unpackage the racism that you may be unconsciously replicating by condemning things like animal sacrifice. And that you would be invited to look at my Yoruba spiritual family and elders in the face and be like, you shouldn't live like this. You shouldn't eat this goat in your yard. It's immoral. And, and do you really want to dig into that stance? that tells traditional Africans or people here, homesteading people here of all ancestries, how they need to live and eat. Ecologically, it is not always more harmful to eat the bodies of animals. That depends on your local region. And I'm also a big fan of eating in ecologically mindful ways. But I'm saying if you're not careful, you can replicate straight up racism by condemning the fact that sometimes people even pray with their food before they prepare it. That's uh, a useful perspective. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so lesson three is called Respecting the Ancestors and Tradition. And I was 
very interested in understanding the human dead as part of the sacred ecology of place. Yeah, the idea that there's nature and then there's humans is another fiction that's important to break down. It's not how most of our ancestors viewed life. The, the idea, that, you know, nature is an impressive concept uh, in that sense. It, it, it pushes us further from felt connection to life. And it is important to recognize that all of us have blood and body and bone ancestors who had, who enacted during their life good relational values at times. That doesn't mean our older ancestral cultures were all just and lovey and balanced all the time. But in terms of earth honoring sensibilities, that's in all of our ancestors. As someone of German, English, Irish, early settler, colonialist ancestry to North America, I'm about as ancestrally removed from animist culture as any other demographic on earth. And nonetheless, my own ancestors are present here in this conversation. And they understood during their life, many of them, especially the older ones, how to take care of these relationships. So that's part of what we get into in that lesson and how to connect with our earth honoring ancestors and even the ones who weren't very tapped into that during life can change and come back into relationship the dead change and we also touch in that lesson on the importance of inherited tradition and respecting lineages of practice and how traditions ancestral traditions are the body of the ancestors if you have like as an initiate in orisha tradition I'm initiated into the ancestral, the accumulated ancestral wisdom of a certain Yoruba tradition lists. Like their mm, traditions are made up of ancestors, put it that way. And what do you talk about in this lesson too when you um, reflect on the impacts of colonialism on your diverse ancestors? Just that we, if we're like, I don't know if it's real. I connected with this, the flicker spirit, but it could just be my imagination. The part of us that would dismiss our own knowing is that part of us is grappling with cultural damage from uh, colonialism is a generalized way to describe, but as someone of European lineages, that includes Roman and Holy Roman Empire colonialism toward the tribal peoples of Northern and Western Europe. But the timeline for different lineages varies, of course, depending on where you're from in the world. And a handful of people on Earth still have intact lineages of uh, culture that honors these relationships. For everybody else, it's a reclamation effort. And recognizing that it hasn't always been the way it is now can be useful and encouraging in reclaiming these, our capacity that's innate for these relationships. Right, so are you saying that um, we kind of get out of a colonizer mindset when we really open to these experiences of relating with our other-than-human kin being real? Correct. And for people, uh, you know, the course is for everybody, and we present perspectives from around the world, but for people who are of European ancestries, it's important to not indulge cultural low self-esteem just because white people have been, generally speaking, causing a whole bunch of problems outside of Europe for the last 500 years, doesn't mean that feeling terribly about yourself, ancestrally speaking, is actually very useful. It's not. It's not a very interesting stance. It's not very useful for the movement. And so it's important to just come back into relationship where you're at and start from there. That, that that actually is a kind of gentle relational way into a decolonizing sensibility is to look at the damage from colonialist mindsets in our own ancestries, to start to apply the antidote to those, which is coming back into relationship. And from that place in partnership with the earth and the waters and the trees and everybody else where you're at, you'll be more able to meet the moment in terms of political and legal change and all that. 
Very useful. Thank you so much. Um, okay, lesson four, boundaries, consent, and sacred space. Um, this is something you really focus on with the ancestor work. That is also very useful there. Um, so in here you have that this is about examining cultural conditioning that minimizes others' existence. What does that mean? If we can't receive no or say no to others, we're not ready for yes yet. And our ability to come into relationship with the rest of life isn't as balanced as it could be. If we, for example, are so excited that anything in the universe was willing to connect with us, then our low self-esteem and lack of boundaries and discernment means that we're likely to get into a hazardous spot with ritual work. Or if we have an entitled view that says, I can connect with whatever I want, however I want, because I just came and made an offering or because I want to do it, then that's a different kind of, uh, you could say colonialist mindset or just entitled boundary disrespecting attitude. And so the, the sense here is that human relationships with the other than humans parallels human to human relationships. And we haven't, many people haven't been raised in a culture that really is very consent-minded. And so we can learn important things about consent and boundaries and etiquette and politeness in relating with the other than humans as well. So that, uh, yeah, we're, the lesson gets into how to hear no from the spirits and really take it in and no limitations and how to be able to, when the spirits tell you to do something, when your ancestors tell you to do something, how to say no to them. That's important. Yeah, I've seen that come up in, um, I've participated in two ancestral lineage healing intensives put on by people who um, have trained with you. And I have to say, it was surprising to me when that idea first came up that you can say no to an ask mm -hmm. from your ancestors, right? I, I think we think like, I have to say yes, like they're my people. Uh, this is a big deal if they ask something of me. And <clears throat> excuse me, though, I haven't had the experience myself. I found it really useful to even just being, be given that permission to say no if it would be too, too burdensome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Uh, all all the stuff we're trying to sort out around consent culture as it relates, of course, to intimate connections, but not only that, because colonialism is a, a, can, a, just a massive systemic consent violation in terms of one's space and territory. And so all the, the depth of the issues around consent can be practiced and, and brought into our relationships with the other than humans as well. Ecological destruction on Earth is a big grinding consent violation of taking without permission. So if we learn, if we really take to heart the stuff around consent, it has lots of implications. Wow. Um, yes, I, I hope this um, framework is moving for you, I, or is working for you. I just, I really like focusing on a, a bunch of different things because there's oh, so much that I think people can hook into. But I just want to say that I could keep going with every <laughs> everything you say. There's so much we can dive into it. And you also have a ton of free talks available on your website, ancestralmedicine.org, that I highly recommend people listen to if this is resonant at all for you. Daniel, many, many hours of talks there that you can just dive deeper into everything we're talking about here. Um, so lesson five, uh, celebrating diverse bodies and wisdoms. You're going to talk about, in this course, expanding vocabulary for the sacred by reflecting on our animal kin. Yeah. I, I try to not to be, you know, too depressing with the course. Like <laughs> genocide and extinction and colonialism. But no, wait, it's actually kind of sweet once you get through the layers. And one of the joyful aspects of coming back into relationship is seeing... <coughs> how the other than human world or the our kin have tremendous diversity of form 
generally speaking, this is a big generalization, but I think animist-oriented cultures, uh, you could generalize and say a lot of indigenous cultures, tend to do a better job at recognizing human cultural diversity because they're uh, they look to the rest of the natural world as the reflection of the sacred. And, and when you look to so-called nature, you see a, a great diversity of forms. And if you see humans as inseparable from the rest of life, you would expect to see a great diversity of forms among humans as well. And so animals are like that, and they are teachers about the flexibility of consciousness and to know that the medicine of butterfly and of hyena and of E. coli and of, I know it's not technically an animal, but you get the idea, and of um, giraffe, that there one is not above the other, but they're really quite different modes of consciousness. And each one is an elder, complex teacher deity, if you will. And so that engagement with these different elder powers and trying on those different forms and those different flavors of consciousness is good for us. It gets us out of a stuckness and encourages us to cultivate what you could call archetypal diversity or like, a, uh, you know, we, we tend in this culture to get like the six to 12 crayons, so to speak, and if you come into relationship, if you, even if you're just a natural or amateur naturalist, you get like the 64 crayon set. And then you really start studying nature. It's like, oh, it's 128 now. And then so how much diversity of form can you really incorporate? The more you live with that, the more we live with it, the more we can find actual neutrality. Okay, uh, lesson six, extinction, grieving, and opening the heart. Uh, you'll be contextualizing your devotions amidst the current extinction crisis. What does contextualizing your devotions mean? It means not getting in a self-absorbed, narcissistic, spiritual bubble of self-improvement when we're in a massive hemorrhaging of biological diversity on the earth, mm. not to mention the amount of profound human suffering that is on track to really just increase in our lifetimes. And how do we make our heart the shape of the world and feel the agony of what's happening, but not drown in it? Because it's actually indulgent to drown in it as well. Because if we really care as deeply as we might claim to, the response is more ideally about what's my role? How can I be useful? And not, I'm drowning. Let me post it on Facebook as a indicator of how committed I am. Uh, I know it's a little snarky there, but I'm saying the, um, the challenge is to not uh, isolate to stay in relationship but once we stay in relationship the amount of suffering is is really off the charts and how do we live sustainably year after year in those conditions and joyfully even so we'll talk about that a bit and how to get good, how to get good at grieving we'll, we'll have it all resolved in a 30 minute uh, clip it'll be really tight <laughs> but you you are offering that piece of it too um you know, get, getting good at grieving and exploring ritual skills for working with grief and loss and heartache. And that's useful too. Yeah. Um, so, and then lesson seven, finding your place in the natural disorder. Uh, yeah, I have written here, consider how power dynamics and differentials inform ritual etiquette. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about in that lesson about the importance of recognizing that everybody's got their own distinct and different unique medicine and their own unique um, soul level calling. And so it's actually oppressive to act, to try to get other people to be like you or to try to imitate other people. But we're also going to talk about the tendency, especially, I think Americans are especially bad at it, uh, the tendency to flatten all powered 
differentials, as if that's liberatory. To say that anyone who is, like hierarchy itself is inherently oppressive. I don't see it that way. That's not what observations of other than human communities reveal. It's not what my experiences personally in intact indigenous systems show. And yet people struggle because understandable reasons about the way that power gets abused in feeling like any power differential is inherently oppressive. And if we don't look at that and re-examine that, um, it can lead to stuckness. You know, you're a parent and if you we're like, oh, me and my kids, we're on the same level. I process with them and I expect them to take care of my feelings and, you know, I, I feed them sometimes, but we're equals. It would not lead to good outcomes. Now, you can rec recommend or you can respect the sacredness of them, but there's a power differential where they're elders. And so that how we do human relationships and how much we can allow for those power differentials is going to affect how we approach the other than human relationships. If you come at a mountain spirit with like, hey, what's up, bro? Good to see you. <laughs> You're not on the level. You're just not. Most mountain spirits aren't going to have a lot to say to you when you come with that form. So again, human relationships mirror relationship with the others. Yeah, I mean, hierarchies are just embedded everywhere in the natural world. It is a really silly kind of uh, liberal, <laughs> left-leaning ideology to think that hierarchies are inherently bad. Right. Um, so then we move into part two of the course. And lesson one there is deeply rooting into one very specific place. So, you know, I'm going to just say this, it looks like in this animism work, as well as with what I'm familiar with in your ancestral work, there's certainly theory, there's beautiful ideas, there's paradigm shifting concepts, and there's a lot of practicality too. Um, <clears throat> I really uh, appreciated seeing that as I was looking through the framework of this course. And so in this in this first lesson of part two, we're going to start to reclaim dynamic relationships with previously overlooked earth kin. What is, what is the previously overlooked earth kin? Yeah. And just to speak to the earlier point, even though I'm a bit of an intellectual and there's a lot of intellectual resources that are optionally part of the course, it is experiential and it's not heady. Ultimately, I like to articulate stuff well when I can partly to bring the Mm, sort of subversive dignity of earth honoring ways into the mainstream and to not have people feel like it's intellectually less uh, less in any way like we talked about earlier but the lesson is focused on seeing where you're at as the holy land even if you're in suburban Baltimore or you're in some place that just doesn't feel that quite on the level with the Machu Picchu or with some wherever you envision as like a, a place in the natural world, a lot of vitality. Maybe you're in a place that's been really uh, desecrated in a lot of ways over time. And we'll be, participants will be invited to find a sit spot, even if that needs to be for mobility accessibility issues in one's apartment. Sitting still, when we sit still, the world spins around us. When we're moving, it's like, um, yeah, uh, there's something about sitting still that we then suddenly we see how much is spinning. And we can um, allow certain layers to settle enough to hear older songs from the other than humans and to value what's right beneath us. It's the same sensibility that has us focusing on food, food plants in the course early on. Because if we're not looking at the plants and animals that we're consuming, we're skipping steps to dive in with the ancient redwoods and mountain lions and hummingbirds. Um, I'm looking forward to talking more about the plants right now. Lesson two, friendship and healing with our green kin. Um, I really liked that the first point under this lesson is releasing hangups about 
not being a plant person, whatever that oh, means. Yeah. I know the snobbiness. Not, it's certainly not everybody, but there can be there can be an assumption which I love herbalists and herbal medicine and all that. There sometimes can be an assumption that to relate with the plants, one must be an herbalist, and that's that's a very specific calling, and that's a very specific demographic among the plants. Someone might be profoundly connected to plant consciousness and just work with companion plants, plants in one's home, or or so-called ornamental plants that get brought in to beautify one's uh, external surroundings at their home, or plants that are used to remediate different kinds of you know troubles or clean up human mess or for food or for whatever. So the focus in the lesson is on friendship. And almost, you could say, it's a little pretentious word, but like mysticism with the plants. And I don't mean psychoactives necessarily. I mean, no disrespect to that. But I'm, I'm talking about the, the holiness and the depth of consciousness that's present. If you know how to really drop in with the ficus or the air plant or the aloe in your home and how their voices get overlooked because of our snobbery sometimes yeah i was excited to see this one because um as as an herbalist i also see how not meaningless but um that phrase that word that concept is not clearly defined um especially in the states where there's no certification for being an herbalist it's something that anyone can claim to be and um I really have spent my career um, uh, encouraging people to to just like talk to the plants, to just start a relationship in some way. It does it doesn't have to look any way. There's no wrong way to do it. There's no right way to do it. At least when it comes to um, the kind of herbalism that I like to teach and talk about. And so, mm-hmm. for people who might feel intimidated, or you know, might be listening, being like, "Oh, but Amber, she's like a real herbalist." You know, I look at other people, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, no, he is a real herbalist." I'm just over here, like playing around, pretending. Um, so I'm just thankful that you are giving people permission. It's it really is our ancestral human right to work with plants. It is a thousand percent in all of our blood and bones and DNA to have a relationship with the plant world. Yeah, for sure. I see it that way too. Thanks, Amber. Yeah. Yeah, nothing special. You don't have to be chosen <laughs> to totally. to walk the path. Um, part three: praising and feeding the earth as deity. And so, yeah, just that that's a really interesting phrase to me. And then this idea underneath that I was very curious what you mean by focusing on withdrawing projection of personal pain and gender norms on the earth. Yeah. I don't know. I'd probably make some people mad with what I have to say, but that'd be the first time I've done that. (laughs) uh, At a certain point in the discussion with the course, there's a tension between I'm, I'm real conscientious about not wanting to teach a certain tradition even though I am steeped enough in Yoruba traditions that I could I could teach fundamentals up to like medium depth. But that's not what we're doing in this course. And so having said that, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking for what are recurrent patterns. And one of them really is to give reverence to who we call in Yoruba tradition, Onile or Mole or uh, Pachamama or Unchimaka or Gazar Edge or Gaia, the the earth as deity. And it doesn't mean that there aren't traditions that see the earth as feminine, let's say. But we so quickly, and there are many that see the earth as masculine and and even more that see the earth as not gendered along those binaries. And not only for people who are gender nonconforming, non-binary, queer, trans, etc., but perhaps especially for such folks, the replication unconsciously and unnecessarily of a gender binary onto the earth is at the very least annoying. It's annoying to me. And it often means that we um, project stereotypes about gender onto our experience of this very complex ancient 
multifaceted deity who's also us. And and one thing I speak to briefly in the lesson is about the, for example, the language of raping the earth. I'm like, come on, can we use that very charged and very specific kind of language to describe what it uh, ideally is used to describe for clarity? Because it really uh, is the, the desecration of a, a, an area of land for mining, let's say, it's not necessarily sexualized violence. It's not the same as human to human harm. And it leads into other ways of speaking of the earth, like we need to take care of the earth because women need taken care of. And the earth is our mother. We need to take care of our mother. And, you know, there's benefit in that. That language might resonate for some people. And I'm saying caution also in how much we project our hurts, our gender norms, our binary thinking onto this ancient, complex, multivalent deity that is dreaming us up. Hmm. That's very interesting. I've never thought beyond the framework of Mother Earth, but um, of course it's so much bigger than that, than that gender binary. I look forward to exploring that more. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Lesson four, blood, sex, tears, and the water spirits. Um, and this will include exploring water ritual themes such as grief, the erotic, ancestors, food, and healing. <laughs> That's just like so much. There's a lot of diverse ideas and things right there. How does this all tie into water? In this lesson, I was looking at what are some recurrent ways that different cultures uh, associate or approach the waters with. Uh, And the invitation is for participants to come humbly with a spirit of listening to the waters local to where they live and see if those specific waters, which include the waters typically that you're ingesting every day, and ask them for assistance or just listen with them. And we talk about how much to bring our issues versus showing up and just receiving. So there's a bit of both that are important. And notice how these different prayers that we're working on in our life, grieving, relational healing, healing around intimacy, around dreaming, whatever it might be, can be amplified, (coughs) excuse me, and increased and enhanced by inviting in the support of the waters that we, can, we we heal in partnership with the rest of life and with the land where we're at. If we let the good medicine of the land where we're at assist us, that's not greed or entitlement. That's also good for the land. It creates a kind of beneficial indebtedness and relatedness and, um, there's a teaching, I, I think it's, I forget her name, unfortunately, um, Julia Parker, maybe from, uh, I think Sierra Miwok, a basket maker, a native California elder. Uh, and she's talking about her work with the plants, but it applies here and is basically saying, if we don't continue to work with the plants, they lose their medicine. And she's saying that the relationships need maintained over time. And so we're talking about how do we bring our troubles and our learning and our growth edges to the waters close to where we're at. Our growth edges. Um, Lesson five, honoring place-specific blessings and challenges. Ask nicely to understand deeper layers of magic at your specific place. Yeah, this... This draws a little bit on Keith Basso's work with the Western Apache people, uh, his brilliant book, uh, Wisdom Sits in Places. And he's highlighting something that's common to many cultures around the world, which is that places have their own stories, their own qualities, medicines, properties, magics. And like imagine if you're a doctor and the only thing you can prescribe are places. Mm. What... And so we start to ask, well, what are the properties? What are the qualities of the place where we live, of uh, the place, you know, the places within 20 miles of us? And 
starting to bring that sensibility to the specific place, the sit spot where we've been. And folks in the course will be invited if they're moved to, to share a little with the others in the course, how they're experiencing the place that they're at. And to, to listen through that lens of what's the magic of this specific place. It's not that different from how do we respect each living human's different gifts and medicine who we meet. Uh, can't wait. Uh, lesson six, ancient ones who are animals, plants, and places. Um, so here you've written that we'll learn inclusive ways to think about deities, archetypes, and weird old gods. <laughs> and also that we'll distinguish between deities of ancestry, place, and chosen tradition. Um, so this seems to me like perhaps this lesson is a lot about distinguishing these these beans, I'll just let you speak. Yeah, it's a, it was the most tricky lesson to record because not all traditions necessarily are, uh, have a construct that we might think of as deities, something like that. There's a distinction, it's a little technical, between animism and totemism. And some you know, cultures that on the surface are comparably indigenous, so to speak, might have stylistically quite different conclusions about how they approach relationship with the other than humans. You know, one simple example might be Thor as a deity from my own ancestral heritage as a part Germanic person, and that deity is associated with oaks. If I have to ask a question to a prominent oak, would I ask Thor? Would I ask the oak? Would I ask Thor to facilitate a, que uh, uh, a question with the oak? Or are Thor and the oak the same uh, bigger deity that responds to that name? And how do we, uh, a lot of traditional cultures think along those pathways, that there are complex elders whose bodies include certain plants and animals. Like it's the same, like mugwort, and the moon and um, the mongoose might be all the same person, so to speak. And so that conceptual framework really stretches Western-minded folks who tend to think in very discrete relationships. So we'll get into that a bit, get a little weird with it. That sounds very interesting and fun. Lesson seven, animism as lifestyle, culture, and public policy. Um, right, that we'll learn ways to harmonize ritual skills with cultural and political advocacy. Yeah, I want to see the core value set that recognizes humans are just one kind of person and that we're morally and ethically accountable to the other kinds of people. I want to see that be really mainstream and really normal and not only associated with indigenous people because it's not... Uh, because, well, because good values, like indigenous folks don't have a monopoly on good values, nor do they all embody good values. But I want to see, for example, the personhood of rivers, which has gotten some traction in, let's say, New Zealand among the Maori people. It would be nice to see the San Joaquin or the French Broad River or the Mississippi or the Thames have personhood legally politically, culturally, that we recognize that the other than humans have uh, legal and political standing as people, and that our laws and institutions and elections and policies uh, take that into account. That's quite normal. So how do we get from here to there? We're talking about that, and how do we make sure this stuff isn't spiritual, it isn't compartmentalized into a private, personal spirituality that we keep separate from life okay and this um this little piece here i thought i might skip altogether but i think you can cover it quite quickly and i think it'll just be a really useful framework for our listeners um you've laid out this three-step progression to get your life together <laughs> More or less. And it sounds like this all gets covered in this course and in all your free talks on your website, your book, other podcast interviews and stuff like that. But can you just give us these three steps briefly before we close? 
let's see if I remember it. I, I think uh, I think it goes something like get well with your own ancestors and your own culture of origin as a human. Yeah, and, that's step and, one. And yeah, just that check and knowing it's you know it's iterative. This stuff's ongoing, right? And you know, step two, as you get more online with your humanity and your ancestry, and you're able to responsibly inhabit whatever your social position is, get well with the land where you're at, with the earth generally and the earth where you're at, and the larger community of other than human people who sustain your life. And from that sense of being well with your ancestors and well with the land, ask again with even more clarity what your specific unique medicine or gifts or soul level purpose or destiny or call it what you will what are you specifically doing here and with the backing of your ancestors in the land get busy doing that until you die <laughs> even if it's different than what you think it ought to be even if you don't feel like doing it even if other people are going to judge you for it or it's not as flashy as you want it to be or whatever get busy doing doing you because that's also what's going to bring the most good into the world typically as well. Hell yeah. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so let's tell people about the course when it starts, how it's structured and um, all that. Sure. The course starts in, I think, May 13th. It will, it will keep it open until probably the start of June, I think. May I interject? It's called Practical Animism Online Course, Reclaiming Kinship Through Earth-Honoring Ritual. It's true, just like that. And, uh, you know, the details are on my site, ancestralmedicine.org. And we're, one thing I'm excited about is that there'll be you and probably 25 other really great, skillful, interesting humans who are supporting the course which means they'll be present in a lot of the 14 online, or sorry, the 14 live conferences and calls, which are really just driven by folks' questions. And they're also going to facilitate small group breakouts on those calls. So it means that you'll get a chance to work with different awesome supporter folks. People can send in questions to me. There's an interactive space through Facebook. There's 14 pre-recorded lessons in addition to the 14 live conferences and all those are transcribed and closed captioned for the recorded lessons for deaf or hard of hearing folks and I approach the work in a culturally um, mindful way in a like anti-oppression sort of way to the best of my ability knowing that we're all still learning and there's a lot of flexibility around cost to keep it accessible to folks. And there's a ton of extra resources and information. Like I, as a teacher, err on the side of overwhelming people with uh, a generous amount of educational information and trust that people will wade through it in the year that they continue to have access to that after the course. So it's a lot of value for the money compared to what's happening out there. And me and the other 25 people holding the course down are really committed to it meeting people well. Like, we care about this. We're doing it because we care about it. And we want to see people be well met by things. Yeah, it really looks like um, it's just going to go above and beyond expectations. And I'm really excited about the 14 live calls and then the opportunity, as you spoke of, to break into smaller groups after the call in Zoom and have like small group conversations. I, I love that aspect of in-person classes and online classes because that's when you really form relationships that can be so deep and nourishing and last a lifetime. It's true. We have a good time with it, I'll say. Look, I can come across as a little intellectual or serious or Vulcan or something in, in interviews or pre-recorded stuff, but when we get into live conferences, we have a good time. We were talking about the lizard people and life on Mars and about, oh, you just get into really um, fringe and funny conversations in the live calls, as well as touching, you know, heartfelt 
kinds of things. So there's space for that, but we're also going to have a good time with it and like a not uptight way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I think I come across the same way, like pretty serious and kind of just like chill and maybe a little dreamy, but I have fun too. And I'm really looking forward to kind of um, letting loose in these smaller group sessions. So Thank you so much, Daniel. People can find you and find more about this at ancestralmedicine.org. Do you have anything anywhere else to send people or anything else coming up you want to talk about? You know, I, I could say a lot about the stuff I'm doing, but um, I'm, I will say real briefly that I'm teaching in Australia and Hawaii and Portugal and Germany and Finland and Austria and England this year. Yeah. And so if folks are not in the States and just are really looking for a good excuse to go to Finland or something. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's, I'm excited about that. It's more of an ancestral healing focus, but uh, yeah, just that. And there's a lot on the site. So folks who are drawn can check out what's happening there and the work from the other awesome teachers in the, in the work. So Yeah. And there are other many more um, ancestral healing intensives happening in the States the rest of this year as well. It's true. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah, and I've already probably said at least six or seven times on the show that I really recommend participating if you're able. So, uh, okay. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks, Amber, for your service and your work with the podcast and all of it. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, past podcast episodes, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, I invite you to click the purple banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, which healing herb is your plant familiar? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. There's some killer rewards there, um, exclusive content, access to online courses, free, beautiful, downloadable ebooks, coupon codes, giveaways, and just amazing gifts provided by past guests of the podcast. All of that stuff is at the $2 a month level. Um, for a little more, you can access my herbal ebook or my small online course. And that's all there as a thank you, a huge thank you from me and from my guests for listening, for supporting this work. I love figuring out what I can give to people on Patreon. It's so fun. And I love that Patreon makes it that you can um, contribute for such a small amount a month. I'm a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding this project into my life has been a questionable move for sure, but I love doing it and I love the feedback that I get from you all. And I just pray that the Patreon continues to allow me the financial wiggle room to keep on doing it while giving back to everyone who's listening. Um, if you're unable to do that, or if you'd like to support further, I would love it if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would review the podcast on iTunes too, really helps get it into other ears and it means so much to me when I read those reviews. It's um, like the highlight of my week when I check them and see new ones. And people are amazing. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. The music that opens and closes the show is by Marie Sue, M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X. It's from her song Wild Eyes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you so much. And I look forward to next time.